Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. I hope you're having a great, great morning. Sunny, sunny outside, and it's sunny in here in the in-studio. I have Miss Bianca Vasquez with us. Good morning, Bianca. Hi, Vernon. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay. So what do you do? Yeah, so I am the program director with Beloved Community Incubator, which is a small and new nonprofit here in Washington, D.C. that supports uh, worker cooperatives. You said Beloved Community. Yeah. Beloved Community. Yes. How did you get that name? So uh, Beloved Community Incubator actually started as a program of Luther Place Memorial Church in downtown Washington, D.C., and Luther Place has a long history of supporting social justice initiatives in D.C., for example, started the largest women's homeless shelter in the city, which is N Street Village. And the congregation was trying to figure out how it would be a church that responded to income inequality and gentrification in Washington, D.C. And after rounds of community listening, we realized that job creation and the support of worker cooperatives and social enterprise would be how we responded to gentrification and income inequality and wage stagnation. And so the name Beloved Community Incubator comes from Martin Luther King Jr.'s concept of the beloved community. And the beloved community had two components to it. So what are those two components? Yeah, one was really sort of a social component around inclusion and diversity. And I, I the second piece was really around anti-racism and economic equality. And so for us, Beloved Community Incubator has a vision for racial and economic equity. So helping folks create wealth and also unlikely relationships. Well, I like creating wealth. I like that <laughs> as an idea, particularly for marginalized people, people that the system seems to say you cannot make it, you cannot do it. But unfortunately, what I don't like about the system is it says it's your fault. Yeah. If you're in poverty, it's your fault. If you're too lazy, you don't work enough, da 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 as opposed to looking at the system of how it really pushes people down. Mm-hmm. And that income gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. I really think how we talk about and frame poverty in this country um, really is about personal responsibility and personal fault. And that what happens when we think about if you're poor, it's because you're not lazy or you're not working. It's that we blame individuals for structural problems. What do you mean by structural problems? You know, uh, no amount of hours worked and no amount of working hard changes that the minimum wage is not enough to pay rent in this city, right? No amount of working hard um, necessarily in the system as it is gives you access to ownership of your business. You know, you're an employee. You're at the at the whim of somebody else in a lot of ways. And so at the mercy of the massa, <laughs> okay. you blush, but yeah, it's the, you're at the mercy of the slave owner, but that slave owner takes a different term. It's not a slave owner as it was in 1850, 
but it's a you, you got this corporate America and it runs everything and it, the system is so designed and that's why this political election is so important by the way I just throw that in but the system is designed to keep people down mm-hmm. and it's designed so that the rich get more and more well, that is how traditional work is set up. So if my employer pays me $10 an hour or $15 an hour, I create more value than $10 or $15 an hour for my employer or else it wouldn't be worth it to hire me at all. So in essence, by working, you know, it is about creating more value than you're paid for somebody else. And that's why I think worker ownership is so powerful, because in a traditional company, A president or CEO is incentivized to pay people as little as possible and have them be as productive as possible to create wealth and profits for shareholders. You Uh. said it so clearly. (laughs) I got it. So that when you work for somebody, the whole idea is that you have to produce more than what you're getting paid. And that difference, that gap, that Delta, if you will, that that you produce over what you're getting paid goes to the pocket of the owners. Yeah, in a small business to the owners or in a larger corporation to shareholders that you're getting paid is exactly, you know, you don't get paid more than the value that you supposedly produce. Okay, that's real clear. And those shareholders are the owners. Yeah. 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 So those shareholders is what gets the profit. And they may not even live in the community. Most likely they don't where the business is. And they may not even live in the United States. And they take the profit and take it away. And we'll talk more about this when we talk about the values of worker cooperatives. So you're at Luther Place? Luther? Luther, Yeah, Luther Place Memorial Church. And then we realized to do the work that we wanted to do around supporting a just and equitable local economy that we really needed a separate nonprofit to do so. Um, And that's how Beloved Community Incubator was born. Beloved Community Incubator to create social justice and wealth. Yeah, that's it. That, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the short of it. Yeah, we're looking to help create a just and equitable local economy by supporting worker cooperatives. All right. I said it in less words than you did. But it's, it's <laughs> social justice and financial wealth. Yes. That's what co-ops are. There are four types of co-ops, by the way. And so you, you've already mentioned worker co-ops. So just for everybody out there, worker co-ops can be any business you can think of. If it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's a worker co-op. So any business, big, smalls, it could be a worker cooperative if it's owned by the employees and controlled by the employees. And then if a business is owned by the consumers, controlled by the consumers, and credit unions are an example, housing co-ops are an example, most often food co-ops are that way, that the people that own the food co-op are the people that shop there. The people that own the credit union are people that deposit their money there. The people that own the housing co-ops are the people that live there. They they are the consumers of the product, so they own the business. There is a, a consumer co-op in Madison, Wisconsin, that's a health clinic. It's owned and controlled by the patients. And I kind of would like to be, see that how that works and what kind of policies the patients set up, which would be different perhaps than what the doctors and the nurses and or shareholders would would put up. So those consumer co-ops is the second big one. And then there's a two more that are the best example where farmers uh, have been using these for a long time. And the Department of Ag is probably the 
the division in the U.S. government that knows most about co-ops. But Department of Agriculture helped them to set up purchasing co-ops. So purchasing co-ops are those co-ops that would work for their members to buy products, to understand the products, and get them better quality at lower price. And uh, so the farmers have used those. Artists are beginning to use them. There's one that started in the district called CPA, uh, Community Purchasing Alliance, for churches and, and uh, schools, schools yeah. and nonprofits. And then low, uh, housing co-ops are beginning to use them also. So the, the fourth one is on the other end of the farm is when they get to market their products. So the farmer buys stuff, seed, fertilizer, gas, the equipment, whatever they need to produce their products. And then they will create a marketing co-op to sell their product to. Dairy farmers have created uh, Cabot Creamery or Organic Valley, and they belong to these co-ops and they push their milk there. And therefore, they're not at the risk of the markets all the time and they can get a better price in their products and go to more and more markets they couldn't do. If they are farming in Pennsylvania, they may not be able to reach California unless they go to this marketing co-op. So those are examples of the four types. And you are focusing on, Luther Place is focusing on worker co-ops and developing worker co-ops in Washington, D.C., Right. Yeah. Looking to support existing cooperatives, um, worker cooperatives in the district, and then also helping form and start and incubate and launch new worker cooperatives. Great. So how long have you been doing this? Uh, not very long. So <laughs> the and I would say I sort of fell into it. Um, I was doing neighborhood listening meetings um, and people started to talk about their work and their work being the most pressing issue on their lives. Whether that I'm sorry, was, I'm sorry. What's yeah. a neighborhood listening meeting? <laughs> um, so I come from a community organizing background and the I guess the theory or the imagination is that the folks on the ground are actually the experts and that people can really tell you what is most important to them. Um, and people are most likely to act on what's most important to them. So we were meeting with folks from local apartment buildings and the local elementary school. We started post the 2016 election to say, what's most important to you? What's most pressing on your life? And people started to talk about jobs. Um, talk about their work, to talk about how wage theft had increased and the instability of their hours had increased and the amount of... What had increased? Uh, wage theft. Wage theft. What is that? So um, where employees or managers, if folks were getting paid cash, were taking a portion of the cash or not giving them credit for hours that they had actually worked. So saying they had worked 15 hours instead of the actual 20 hours that they had worked. And um, so that was... Wage theft. Yes. I've not heard of that before. So you're basically stealing people's hours. Yes. They work 20 hours, you pay them for 15. Yeah. Or you clock people out before they're actually done with their shift. That, That I hear happens in restaurant work a lot. Lots of ways in which wage theft happens across the country. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So people had talked about wage theft. They had talked about just the rising cost of living in the district and how their wages hadn't kept up with the rising cost of living in the district and um, just the instability of their hours. And we were talking to a lot of mothers in this case and female community leaders, and people were also naming the desire to be present parents desire to be to be able to drop their kids off at school or to not have to miss 
their kids' events or things like that. And when they were working for somebody else, that they were unable to have any real control over their schedules. And that was really the first time, not the first time that we had heard some of those things, but there was a clarity around jobs being the most pressing um, issue for folks. And Luther Place was in a relationship with a congregation actually in Detroit, Michigan, uh, called Grace in Action, that they also had a sort of neighborhood-based or community-based incubator for worker cooperatives. And so we had a vision that we could do something similar here in Washington, D.C. Waste theft. (laughs) I want to be present parent. Hadn't heard that before either. I want to be around so that I can see my kids grow up and be a part of their growth. And I want to have some kind of control over my schedule and because I have no control over it. Mm-hmm. So just before we go to break, the Marcus Collaborative wrote a book called Communities Building Wealth. And in that book, they called about they talked about Christina in New York, who was a cleaning person. And she was making seven dollars an hour, according to the story that's in this book. And uh, Christina uh, either joined a co-op or she helped to form a co-op. And her wages went from $7 an hour to $20 an hour. And what she decided to do, therefore, was to spend more time with her kids, work less hours and spend more time with her kids. And that gave her that option to do that. So, yeah, I can see how that could work very, very well. And if you haven't, you might want to read that book. It's a great book. And it's online free at their webpage, the marketing collaborative, I think, dot co-op or dot org. I don't remember. But that's a great, great book. We're going to take our first break and we'll be right back. And I want to I want to get into a little bit more about what the kinds of work you've been doing so far at Luther Place. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. DC's News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, and 95.9 FM. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. You know, WOL makes a great, great, great partner because their motto is information is power, and the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about co-ops. Co-ops help to solve community problems, and if you get this information, that's where you have the power. But you know the power doesn't come from the information? The power comes from utilizing the information, doing something, getting into action, and that's where you have power. And today we have Bianca Vasquez uh, with us, who is with the Luton Place right here in D.C. that's helping people start worker cooperatives so they'll have power in terms of social justice and financial wealth. So, Bianca, welcome back. And tell me, what are some of the kinds of things you've been working on at Luther Place? Yeah. So, again, um, Luther Place started a nonprofit called Beloved Community Incubator, and that's the hub under which most of this work is happening. But we'd be remiss not to name the church helped us get started and serve still as our as our home base. Um, and that's really powerful to have a community of people that care about the common good supporting this mission. So Beloved Community Incubator uh, incorporated last summer and had been doing work since really right after the 2016 election. And primarily what we've done so far is really create the infrastructure for this community-based incubator. And we have one worker cooperative that we helped start 
which is um, Dulce Hogar Cleaning Cooperative. Wait a minute, you have one that you have to get started. It's yeah. already started. Yeah, it's operational. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. It's very exciting. Um, so it's a house cleaning cooperative, um, which was interesting to me, the story that you were just sharing about a woman who was cleaning houses, making $7 an hour, who then her wages almost tripled to about $20 an hour. Mm-hmm. That's that, more than 15 by the way, minimum wage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, what we heard when we were talking to folks in our neighborhood, we I referenced that community listening um, campaign is people were talking about working with agencies and making $40 a day, $50 a day for cleaning houses all day. Hey, wait a minute. $40 an eight-hour day? Yeah, 40 to $60 a day. That's 5 to $7 an hour? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, oh when, when people would do um, work under the table, let's, let's say someone you had hired someone to clean your home individually, they would make more money, but they were also more vulnerable, right? You're, then they're going to your home without insurance. They're going to your home without other workers. So the there was this constant balancing of do I want to get paid more, but have it be a more vulnerable experience or do I go with an agency? And then people were limited by how many clients they could find with their own limited social network or without a website or without significant English skills. So we were hearing from people in our community, um, sort of in the Logan Circle community, that people were working in house cleaning. um, And we asked, like, was there a desire to start a business together to be their own boss? And we started with seven worker owners. Um, We ended the sort of year-long training process with six worker owners, which was really exciting. And they have been operational since January of 2019. So they've been working for seven months. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's six worker owners. Yes. Yes. Great. So let's talk about getting them started. How did that go? What was that whole process like? And the reason I went... I want other people out there, if you have an idea, whether that could be a landscaping business, it could be a IT business, it could be any business that one may want to think of. If you see a community need, it could be cleaning up the Potomac business, mm-hmm. uh, the Anacostia. So whatever that business might be that you want to start, then what's that process? Yeah, so there's there's a number of steps, and it was interesting to sort of learn these things alongside of the worker owners. One was just legal support. So how did they want to incorporate? Uh, how would they write their bylaws? How would decisions get made? So there was that vein of work. And we had amazing support from um, the Small Business Development Clinic at George Washington University. So sometimes the local um, law schools will have legal clinics that are specifically focused on community development. And some law clinics are more or less familiar with co-ops. In D.C., we happen to have amazing resources that the law school is very familiar with worker co-ops. At GW? Yeah. George Washington? Yes. So yeah, the Small Business Economic Development Clinic. So okay. that was one sort of vein of work was the legal work. Then there was the, the soft skills, um, which I think is when you're working with particularly marginalized workers, so folks who hadn't necessarily run meetings before or so, you know, we started with people like, do you keep a calendar? Do you have an agenda? Um, And we used every step of the way to have people practice making collective decisions and working together. So how often did they want to meet? When did they want to meet? Who sends the reminders? Uh, Who writes the agenda? How do you take a vote? What decisions require unanimous consent? What decisions could 50% plus one make? 
Um, so we had to really, we spent months sort of working those things out because um, you want to build the foundation of a good team. What about solving problems together when there's a conflict? Conflict resolution. Yeah, we we were really lucky. Again, I, we have talked about Luther Place and that being a well of support. And we had Luther Place members and friends come and teach uh, a variety of sessions and trainings. And one of them was a trained um, psychologist in the community who came and did a whole session on team building and conflict resolution. What are the different ways in which people respond to conflict? How is conflict handled in your family? Um, what makes you uncomfortable in conflict? And, uh, you know, BCI, Beloved Community Incubator, also hires a, a leadership development coach for each cooperative that we're working with. So we also had someone who was engaging each person individually, but also as a team and coaching them through conflicts um, and decision making and having to speak up when you don't agree. Speak up. All right. Now, you know, we've had this program almost six years. We were only going to do it one month. So it's exciting <laughs> to have so many different people on and talk about so many different uh, subjects. But I've had a number of people say that being in a co-op helped them in their family, helped them in their personal life. And it was about all of these kind of things. If I was a, you know, you say, how do you handle conflict in your family is one way of looking at how do you how you might be able to handle it better in a business. And if you learn how you handle it better in a business, it helps you to learn how to handle it better in your family. It's sort of it's, it's learning, it's training. Mm -hmm. And that is the fifth principle of co-ops, this information training, this old learning piece, this old knowledge piece. And when they first started co-ops, I found, and when they first started these principles, they, they wrote them down in 1844, I believe. That one was for all. That was education. That's reading, writing, arithmetic, and all of these things you're talking about with what they first wanted. Now, mostly it's geared to how do you run a cooperative business, but it could be all of the above. Yeah, okay. and I'm really invested in the transformation and development of people. And so folks I've watched over the past 12 or 18 months really transform. You know, the ability to take on the problems at a scale they haven't taken on before or engage, I mean, do presentations, talk about their business, learn things, take on skills. Like those are different humans at the end um, around confidence and what people feel like they're capable of. Building confidence. That's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do. A little bit. Okay, so you started off by saying there's this legal part, and I want to come back to some of those things, and then there's those soft skills. What are some of the other kinds of things you've got to help people with? Yeah, I think the mindset shift from a worker to an owner, and that is a challenge I uh, was not super prepared for and have learned a lot about over the past year and a half. You know, when you are a employee, you show up every day, the schedule is taken care of for you, the finances are taken care of for you, and you just have to do what is the task that is assigned to you. And, and when you go home, you normally leave it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You go home and you leave it. And, you know, if you have a complaint, you complain outwards to the other employees and sometimes up if you have a supervisor you think would be receptive. When I think about being an owner, you are really hoping to guide and direct and dream for this business. And if there's not supplies, it's because, you know, you have to look inward when something's not working. You know, there's no one to complain up or out to because the team is who's responsible for it. And so that's actually a big shift. 
I also think in terms of, you know, when you're an employee, you're accustomed to thinking hourly. And when you're a business owner, you want to be thinking about revenue. And so there's just expenses. Yeah. Revenue (laughs) and expenses. Um, But you're doing this big shift about how you think about yourself, what power you have, but also how you think even about the business and your role in it. So that mindset shift from being an employee to being an owner is a amazing opportunity. Huge. Yes. Huge. And But I found that how I got into this world was I do property management daytime. Okay. And I, I learned about housing co-ops and the shift there was going from a tenant to an owner. Mm-hmm. Okay. And a mm-hmm. tenant, the same kind of thing. You sort of, you call somebody when something's wrong. Oh, my toilet, I call somebody where you, when you're an owner, you, you got to fix it. <laughs> okay. Whole different kind of mentality. And you've got to look at, I need to turn the lights off because that runs up the electric bill and we end up having to pay for that. So you have to worry about keeping your costs down and you begin to worry about your paying on time and making sure that your neighbors pay on time. So that's what it is. We're going to take our second break and we'll be right back. And when we come back, you know, I want to continue this because there's some questions I have about the legal piece that you had to do, but I'm also want to see what else you had to do. So to start up, we've talked about the legal, the soft part and the mindset change. Mm-hmm. So what could they start at that point or what else would they have to do in order to open up the doors? And they've been in business seven months. And so before we finish this, I want to talk about how have they been doing over these seven months? OK, we'll be right back. News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9 FM. Back, everybody. This is Vernon Oak. The program is Everything Cooperative. And we have Bianca Vasquez uh, in the studio with us this morning. And she's blessing us with a lot of knowledge uh, that she has been learning over the last seven years uh, here in D.C. doing first uh, neighborhood listening to hear what people were concerned about, and they were mainly concerned about jobs and all that that does to affect them and their families. And so at Luther Place, they started a group called Beloved Communities from Martin Luther King, Creating Social Justice and Financial Wealth was the goal. So they've started one worker cooperative, and that's a cleaning cooperative. And Bianca, what was that name again? Uh, Dulce Hogar. So in Spanish, it means sweet home. So it's Say sweet it home. Dulce Hogar. Dulce is sweet. Sweet. And Hogar is home. Okay. Um, so so Casa is house? Yeah, Casa is house and Hogar is home. Okay. Sweet home. Okay. So they started this one co-op, which is a cleaning co-op, with six Six people started it, and they did a year of training. And they, they, Dr. Jessica Gordon-Imhar wrote a book called Collective Courage, looking at the history of co-ops and African-Americans. And it's a great history. But she was saying in her book that uh, most uh, co-ops, when they get started, if you look at them after five years, they are still in business, like 90 percent of them are still in business. Where if you look at the normal shareholder capitalistic model, a small businesses start 
in five years, there's only 10% still there. And I believe that one of those reasons is because this whole year of training that you took them through, once they decide that they want to do this, they have the background, the knowledge, community support. So it's a great chance, a much higher chance, 90% chance that they're going to be successful. So thank you for what you're doing first. And I want to go back to, you talked about the legal, uh, piece that you had to get training on, the soft skills, creating a calendar, all of the kinds of things of decision making and governance, which when you needed 100 percent people to vote on something or 51 percent. And also this mindset changing from a worker to a co-op or from a tenant to an owner, from a worker to an owner or a tenant to an owner, this whole mindset to understand what that's all about and getting them familiar with that and the training about it and how people really, really grow their confidence in this. Okay. So that's what we talked about the first two segments. And now I want you to, if you would, uh, Bianca, if you would continue, what are the kind of other things that you had to train them for that they could have a much better chance of being successful. Yeah. And this, I think, is an opportunity for me to plug some other resources that we've Fantastic. worked with Fantastic. and some other organizations here in the district. Um, so 1DC and the Black Worker Center actually funded a group of folks to go to training with Cooperation Works. And Cooperation Works is a national association of cooperative developers. So a number of us were able to go get training on on how to train folks through this year-long process that I've just been talking about. And the part that we then didn't mention as we were talking about the legal and the mindset and soft skills is really the skeleton, the bones of the business. So we worked with an organization in Massachusetts called the ICA Group, which works particularly with worker cooperatives to do a feasibility study to say, is this business going to be profitable could they get enough of the market share to make investing in this business worth it? And then what might be a business structure that would allow them to do that? And they did five years of financial projections for us. And so that's one group that we worked with. And so um, our worker owners got sort of walked through what did this feasibility study mean? The second group that we worked Wait with... A, minute, I'm, I'm <laughs> a little bit more time with that one okay. because... So ICA did your feasibility study, and then they worked these six folks through that. Did they understand five years of financial projections? Yeah, what was they sent us a whole bunch of spreadsheets, and so it was interesting to just be able to plug in the numbers to say, you know, if we get two new clients a month, what will our finances look like in three years or four years? If we get five new clients a month, what will our finances look like? And there's some stuff that people can understand, you know, only a month out or two months out and some, you know, the vision of you could have pretty sustainable part-time work was just very exciting. And then we got additional training to have them be able to understand like their cash flow statements and, you know, their monthly profit and loss. So there's skills and tools to even understand all those financial projections, but they understood the business structure, how they were going to get paid what parts of the city they should focus on from the information from ICA group. Wow. Having Toy School for 12 years, six of them, six of the last was teaching marketing, getting college students to understand cash flow statements <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> and the financial statements is, is daunting. I'm just thinking about everyday people that don't have the college degree to get them. But that's why I like 
this whole co-op world because they can use the information and therefore, like you said, they know when they get paid, that's critical to them. And then they can begin to see how that money flows in. That becomes critical to them. And they look at their expenses to see what can be left so they can have a profit. That's critical to them. So the knowledge and the learning is it comes alive when it's critical information. And if it's just, oh, this is just theory at a college level, then a lot of times they don't get it. They don't care to get it. But if they knew their life li- livelihood depended on it and raising their children depended on it, they would get it. That's what I like. Okay, that's yeah. neat. So you 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 mentioned 1DC and Black something. The Black Worker Center. Black um, Worker Center. Which is a program of 1DC. Um, and they just opened up a building over by the Anacostia Metro. And we're in partnership with them um, and sort of visioning how to support more cooperatives and worker cooperatives here in the district. Okay. Is that Dominique? Yeah. Yeah, he's one of, I think he's the director. Okay. And then you said Cooperation Works. Yes. Gave you a grant to get training? 1DC gave us a grant to go to training that was led by Cooperation Works. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've got these people... We, we talked about the, the whole image and of mentality, and now you're getting into the business side of it. Mm-hmm. So what else did you have to do? Because you haven't mentioned budget yet. So what else did you have to do? Yeah, we worked. Uh, then we had to get their bookkeeping set up. Um, and we actually worked with another co-op, uh, ABC Bookkeeping in New York, to get their bookkeeping set up and have uh, our folks trained on financial literacy. So what you're really doing is the sixth principle, cooperation among co-ops. Yes, very much so. Okay. So you're starting a co-op and you're utilizing a ABC cooperation in New York that does bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do they just do they just help them set it up or do they do the bookkeeping? They came down and did a two-day training for folks about bookkeeping um, and their businesses' finances. So again, you know, you have to hear information from different people in different mediums, their process was at a different place than when the feasibility study happened to when their training was happening. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was that was a, a big piece was getting them financial literacy training. So how do you understand those statements? And ABC came down. And so they do uh, our monthly reconciling of the books and um, sort of training of worker owners to be able to manage some of their day to day admin and bookkeeping. So reconciling the books just means that you're looking at what the bank statement says and you reconcile it to what your accounting system says to make sure that everything sort of lines up and in this agreement. So you reconcile it. Yeah. Okay. And too often I found out that people do not reconcile their checkbooks. And that's unfortunate, but that this helps them to understand how important that is. All right. So now you've got them doing this feasibility study and you've got them doing their bookkeeping and who paid for ABC to come down for the two days? Beloved Community Incubator. So that's why having a support organization that does technical assistance and resource organizing is so important because you want to set people up for success. You want people to get trained and supported and all of these things come with an expense that a traditional small business or explicitly marginalized workers might not have enough capital to do so. What do you mean by marginalized? You use it several times. I just want to make sure we get clear. Yeah, well, you know, when I talk about it, I'm thinking about refugees, black folks, immigrants, people of color, women, 
low-income workers, service industry workers, folks that have been either excluded by or oppressed by our sort of economic system. And we sort of accept that it's normal to have thousands of people chronically under or unemployed, that that's just how our system works. Um, but when I talk about marginalized workers, that's sort of the umbrella that I'm talking about. So you're basically talking about people that don't make enough money. They don't they don't they have more months than money. Yes. OK. Yeah. You're talking about people that are left out of the system. Mm-hmm. OK. All right. Got it. Mm-hmm. And. For what there are many barriers to traditional employment. Immigration status is a barrier to traditional employment. Um, having a felony conviction is a barrier to traditional employment. The cost of childcare is a barrier to traditional employment. If you make less than what childcare would cost, we can name specific barriers and then think of who those impact the most. And when I think of who those impact the most, it's poor folks, it's people of color, and it's women. Yep. 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 Now, we did have the deputy mayor of New York uh, on the program, and they started a program for four, three-year-olds and then four-year-olds because this child care, more often than not, was 50% or more of what the person was making in order to have child care. So they either didn't go to work <laughs> or uh, they had to work two or three jobs in order to pay for child care. And so they put this program in place so that they would have a safe space for their children to be at and maybe a space where it's safe and they can learn. And that is a major hindrance to getting a job for women, particularly single women. But if you if you have a felony or if you do not have papers, then it gets to be very, very, very difficult to do it. OK, got it. So those are marginalized people. And I'd say marginalized by the system, mm-hmm. by our economic, political, uh, educational system that get marginalized and that too often don't have a way of coming out of it. It's almost like once a body is in motion, it stays in motion. And once a body is not in motion, it won't be in motion. And if you're not in the system, likely you won't, unless something like this happens. So I really take my hat off to Luther Place and you and beloved communities. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there, and there's a huge community of folks that have supported this effort that I would be remiss not to name. This has really been a community saying we're going to support this and we are collectively going to make this happen. Okay. All right. So now I've got I've got some legal skills, some soft skills. I've got some business knowledge. What else do you need? We helped the first co-op. We helped those that get their website, their logo, their marketing materials, and particularly their client management systems together. So you want to have the infrastructure so that when you start getting clients, you're able to actually uh, serve them well and then retain them. So you've got to be able to go and clean whatever they need cleaned and do it well. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be able to invoice them. First, you've got to get them. Okay? <laughs> and you have to know their address and telephone number and their email and all of this. So then after you get them, you've got to service them. And then you've got to invoice them and collect the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and retain them and keep folks happy and incentivized yeah. to refer you to their friends. Got it. Okay, so you're teaching all of that. Yes. Teaching all of it. Okay, so they got started in January. They did get started in January. So how has it been going? It has been going really well. Um, Folks are sort of averaging in the $20 to $25 an hour range. 
which is really wow. exciting. We got to take our next break, so I'm going <laughs> to stop right there. Great. <laughs> They're averaging 20 to 25 bucks an hour. They've been working now for seven months, and so you've got some history there. They had a year's worth of training, six people, and we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back and finish all of this up. Perfect. All right. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, at 95.9 FM. Information is power. The National Co-op Bank is a sponsor of this program. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So, We've been talking with Bianca today about the beloved communities and what they've been doing. We spent most of our time talking about their first co-op that they've helped get started, which is a cleaning cooperative. And we talked about marginalized people, and that's where these low-income communities are. And these marginalized people, they're marginalized by the system. And once in these communities, unless somebody like NCB or beloved community comes in and helps them, the likelihood is they'll stay marginalized. I have this, Bianca, as the saying, the African saying of it takes a community to raise a child. It really takes a community to raise a business, particularly if it's going to be a successful business. And that's what came to me when you were talking right before break about all of the people of that beloved community, all of the people in that community to help this one organization. So can you name some of those again for me? Yeah, so I said we had a we have a deep and abiding partnership with Luther Place Memorial Church and specifically its members. Folks gave time, money, client referrals, um, and their expertise to the training and support of the workers. For the first year, there was a co-op support team made up entirely of Luther Place members that helped plan a retreat for the worker owners, helped you know, whatever the worker owners, as they were going through their own training, had skills and, and needs come up. The co-op support team really took some of those things on. And then we have worked with, like I said, ABC Bookkeeping Cooperative, the ICA Group, Cooperation Works. Those are some of the national partners. And then locally, we've worked heavily with 1DC, who focuses uh, in Shaw and then now has a space over in Anacostia focusing on economic liberation for particularly focused on black and brown folks. So are you a brown folk? <laughs> yes. I'm a black one. Really. <laughs> okay. So you've got this, the, all of these different communities coming together to help this group. So they've been working now for seven months. And you said right before break, they're making on between 20, 25 bucks an hour. So how has it been going these first seven months? Yeah, I think the biggest learning has been, so before we were starting, there was tension of wanting to start the business and start working because um, people needed work and the tension of maybe not yet being ready or some of the systems not being in place. And now that the co-op is operational, there's rhythm of having to make a choice, live in that choice for you know, 30, 60, 90 days, see the results, and then evaluate and shift gears. So, you know, I think of one example was our initial cleaning radius. 
And then they people, the worker owners had to reflect on that has time implications, that has travel implications. How do we feel about that decision we made three months ago? Okay, we want to edit that. Okay, but cleaning radius is how, how far, far they'd be willing to travel for a client. Okay. Um, so that's a small example, but that's the that's the rhythm I think of being a small business owner, and especially a collectively owned small business is to say we made this decision as a team, and now we're seeing the results. Do we want to keep going with that? Do we want to shift that constant evaluation, and then seeing what are the gaps? What further training do people need? What further animation do people need? So what are some other choices? You know, do you want to do green cleaning? Do you want to not do green cleaning. Gosh, you know, how do you want to structure pay, um, offering marketing incentives, all those sorts of, you know, do they want to pay for a Facebook ad? Small things. And that actually, you know, add up in terms of your outcomes, in terms of clients, et cetera, that you have to work out. And when it's more than one person, you know, you have to actually talk through those decisions. Um, so you have six people running a business. Yes. Boy. Yes. And you have all of these decisions that have to be made and made by the six people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then how do they make those decisions and then live by them and then correct it, adjust, correct, change, or keep? So that's what you're learning. Yeah, that's what yeah. That's what they're learning. That's what they're learning. Um, and I would love to be able to share about You know, I talked about the training that Beloved Community Incubator offered before the co-op was operational. I would love to talk about the support that they receive once they're operational. Well, go. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) So we realized after talking to worker co-ops both across the country and locally that actually admin administration for folks is both a burden and an expense. So bookkeeping, scheduling, invoicing, uh, client, you know, tracking and things like that. So for the first two years, uh, BCI subsidizes those expenses 100%. We pay for like a co-op developer, we pay for their training, we and we pay for the admin um, and bookkeeping work to be done for two wait, years. Wait, you all pay for that for two years? Yeah. This is Beloved Community. What's yes. the I stand for? Uh, incubator. Okay. Yeah. So Beloved Community Incubator pays for these things for two years. Yes. And then at year three and four, that subsidy drops down to 50%. And so the idea is then by the end of those four years, plus the year of training, that at the end of that, the co-op then gets to decide what's their relationship with BCI, but that they initially started with enough support, enough subsidy that it gave them the opportunity to build their business and not get sunk by some of those initial costs. So how do you get funding? We uh, have some grant funding, which has primarily initially was faith-based organizations. Um, We have a a grantor, a funder, We Raise Foundation out of Chicago that funds workforce development projects. And we have funding from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, And we've been starting to branch out to see what funding exists and to be creative about it. And then we uh, ran a crowdfunding campaign online in conjunction with We Raise Foundation in the fall. And we had uh, about 120 donors. Average was under $500. And we were able to uh, raise over $50,000. Fantastic. Which is, yeah, exciting. 
So when are you going to do that again so I can play? (laughs) You know, we are always looking for folks who want to donate their time, their energy, um, and for folks who have the finances to donate financially to Beloved Community Incubator because we really want to create a win-win economy. And what started or what's appealing to me about cooperatives is that you can really have a win-win. So folks who are short on time and high on stress and have financial means can have a value-aligned choice for services they pay for, in this case, house cleaning. And so I feel like it's really an opportunity for people to invest in the kind of economy that they want to see. And that, to me, is really inspiring. And I think other people have been inspired by that, too. So how would people find you if they have time and or money, their talents? What yeah. How would they find you? Um, so if people wanted to donate money, uh, you can go to lutherplace.org. On their giving page, there's a co-op fund. That's the way that you can uh, give financially. And if you want to engage Beloved Community Incubator as a volunteer, you can go to our website or you can email us at BelovedCommunityIncubator at gmail.com. And what's your website? Uh, Beloved Communities Incubator. No, <laughs> BelovedCommunity.org. I had to think about it. BelovedCommunity.org. Okay. And I would I would request that you go to BelovedCommunity.org, that you, Bianca, go there and put a donate button on your webpage. Yes. <laughs> we are uh, we are working on it as a very small nonprofit. Um, we are still under fiscal sponsorship. And so, but yeah. Okay. Do you like what you do? I love what I do. And I feel like it happened by accident. And I feel like I stumbled into this work and this role and into cooperatives. There's no accidents. There's no stumbling. Okay. <laughs> you were directed here. I got it. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. And I really do feel called to my work. And what would you like to leave people with? What I want to leave people with, I think, is that cooperatives can pull together a wide variety of values and, and worldviews to create something different. And that's really exciting to me. And that we don't have to accept our economic system as it is. And we don't have to accept that some work is undervalued and underpaid and that we can be committed to the development and transformation of people. So I have it and I would love it if the 20 Democrats and the Republicans would get it that, yeah, raising the minimum wage at 15 is cool. But putting money to start co-ops is even better because 20 or 25 bucks an hour is much better than 15. It's much better than five or seven that you were talking about that some of these people were getting. Mm-hmm. So co-ops have a way. And there was a lady by the Dame Pauline Green that was on the show uh, within the first year. And she said co-ops help people to come out of poverty with dignity. And that's that you said that people end up having confidence. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that you do great work. I really appreciate what you're doing, beloved community incubator. And um, I want to give some money too. So let me know. Everybody out there, we'll see you next week. Please live cooperatively.
Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, and 95.9.